My name is Davis Smith. I'm the CEO of Cotopaxi and an MBA graduate of the Wharton School. The Latter-day Saint MBA Society was founded by a group of MBA students and alumni who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with the hope of bringing together a community of business people striving to bless the world. In this podcast, you'll hear interviews with Latter-day Saint thought leaders that we hope will inspire you both in your professional and spiritual life. For more information about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society, visit latterdaysaintmba.com. And now I'll pass it over to Kurt Frankum, who will host this week's interview. Welcome back to another episode of the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Today, I have the opportunity to sit down with Mike Mon. How are you, Mike? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me today. Yeah, I'm excited to uh, to chat and uh, get to know about you and some of your life experience, especially as it relates to being a, a Latter-day Saint who walks around with a with an MBA. So I'm probably you don't look at yourself like that always, but nonetheless, that's why we're here. So uh, put yourself into perspective, Mike. If somebody asks you what you do for work or uh, you know what you're about, how do you respond to that? Yeah. So look, I have the greatest job in the world. I work at a, at a company called Qualtrics. Um, I started eight years ago in a product related role. I didn't, I didn't love it. I was okay at it, but it wasn't a place I was ever going to excel and decided that I needed to find the right fit. And so after about a year and a half, I moved into our, our marketing group, leading our strategic business development, global communication, sponsorships, corporate social responsibility, stuff like that. Um, and then following, uh, you know, I had an amazing run in all of that. We we did went through two IPO processes. We um, we didn't IPO the first time. We ended up selling in the last second. Uh, three days before we were to ring the bell, we sold to SAP for eight billion dollars, largest uh, enterprise private enterprise software acquisition ever. Um, and then two years later, we we went through the IPO process again. This time, we did ring the bell, trading. Um, on the NASDAQ under the ticker symbol XM. And, uh, you know, when I started, we had 300 people. Now we, we've we got 4,000. We used to just rent two floors in a small office building in Provo and now have 25 offices globally. Uh, and after this second IPO, um, I, I switched roles and uh, Ryan Smith moved from being uh, the CEO to being the executive chairman. And at the same time, I, I moved over to lead the chairman's office uh, so nowadays, the best way to think about it is probably a surgical implementation of any of our big deals, big moonshots. Uh, Ryan yeah. and I started Five for the Fight together, did the Jazz Jersey sponsorship years ago together, um, stuff like that. So just working on pretty cool, amazing, amazing projects with really good people. Yeah, it sounds like it. And, and so, I mean, back when you were in business school, was this sort of the type of job you thought you would have or uh, did it, did it uh, progress in a different way? No, look, it's a good question. I don't know that this job exists. Often we'll go speak <laughs> to different groups or, or people will ask after, how, how do I get your job? And I I always tell them that I don't know that it's a job that, you know, that you um, find applying, but rather uh, grow into and develop. And I think one of the great lessons that, that I learned in life, uh, primarily from an older brother of mine, but talked about, you know, no one is going to manage your career for you. You have to manage your own career. And it's easy for us to to sit around and bemoan, gosh, you know, I, I could do more. I'm capable of more. They don't see what I'm capable of, blah, blah, blah. Um, 
But but really, it's up to us to manage our own careers and and create those opportunities. And thankfully, I've been working with some really great people who give give you the opportunity to bet on yourself, who are willing to bet on you. And um, and I think that as we do that, you know, you're able to sort of shape your career into the sort of thing that you want it to be. And uh, if you're if you're around people like that and in situations like that, and I've just been very very lucky to create that. But but no, I certainly didn't have any clue uh, when I was leaving business school uh, that I'd be doing anything like what I'm doing now. Nice. And you did your undergrad at uh, Brigham Young University. And was it always a, a business uh, trajectory that you were aiming for? No. Uh, look, my education was always incredibly important in my family. Uh, my parents both uh, went to BYU undergrad, both did graduate degrees and uh, education was a huge focus. In fact, uh, just to give you a sense of that, every summer of my whole life, our, our our chores each day, we had one chore outside the house, one chore inside the house, and then we had to read for an hour. And so that was how my mom set it up, was outside chore, inside chore, read for an hour. So education was huge, but I, I didn't necessarily think that I was doing business for sure at all. And in fact, uh, during undergrad, explored a lot of different things. I would spend most summers, uh, I'd spend half the summer in a developing economy working on sort of a humanitarian type project and the other half working in some sort of internship. Uh, and so kept moving back and forth, spent time in Guatemala and El Salvador. And then the next summer, half in Thailand and half in Atlanta, uh, doing an internship there. And then the next summer I was in Ghana for a few months and then Vegas doing an internship and interned in the U.S. Senate in between all that. And so uh, really used my time at BYU to explore a ton of different things and try to figure out what what was a good fit for me. Yeah, and, and I remember you know being in, in school and at, you know in college and you sort of just like count down the semesters, right? Like I have this many semesters, and the, as fast as I can get through those and move on with my life, the better. But you you sort of have maybe a atypical uh, you know <laughs> journey through college of maybe taking it a slower pace and exploring some different things. Like you talked about traveling with internships and different things. Any, any advice that you'd have on, on that approach to college? You know, look, the only thing I can say is what, what, what works for me and everybody finds their own path and will figure out the, the best approach for them. Uh, I, I personally was pretty motivated by just having great experiences in my life and, seeing what was out there and learning and, and trying new things. And uh, I'll never forget seeing this this sign, uh, similar same brother had in his house that said, I'm not the same for having seen the moon shine on the other side of the world. Mm-hmm. And I figured for me, like I, I wanted to see the moon shine in a lot of different places. And, um, and I've never really done anything for the purpose of my resume. Uh, Steve Jobs gave a great commencement address at Stanford years ago where he, one of his pieces of advice was don't connect the dots. And he talked about how he dropped out of school and then took a calligraphy class just because he thought it was interesting. Fast forward years, that calligraphy class became the basis for all the different fonts that Apple did. And then according to Jobs, I'll let Gates argue if he wants, but uh, you know, Microsoft then just copied all of their fonts. And so every font you have is because Steve Jobs took a random calligraphy class because he thought it would be fun. Uh, I think for me that that journey has been the the right path for me to try lots of different things. And, and while you can't connect the dots in the moment, 
I've been so surprised over the years to see how all of these things come together. And when you have all these different experiences, there, there are ways that they come together to allow you to have an impact in the roles that, that you eventually end up in. And so, again, for me, it was a, a circuitous route. I took a little more time to graduate, uh, and, and that worked for me really well, and, and I'd recommend it to anyone. But, but there's also a lot to be said for powering through and knowing what you want to do when you grow up. Yeah, for sure. So tell me about the years between uh, graduating from Brigham Young University and then deciding to go to business school. Yeah. So I graduated from BYU and I I had a wonderful job offer uh, from a, a great company that I'd interned with previously. Didn't um, didn't want to take it, didn't feel right to me. Uh, and it was a, a hard time, to be honest. I mean, my my car broke down. My my dad had to fix it for me. Wasn't super thrilled, thrilled about the idea that I was doing that. I was kind of living just in random places, sleeping, uh, you know, in different apartments or whatever. Finally moved home with my parents for a month or so, but it was, it was definitely not my like best time. But I, I also felt like whatever I was doing wasn't the right fit. And I, I was willing to wait in order to find the, the right fit instead of just make the, the quicker decision. And, um, you know, I'll just, be frank, given our audience here, but I was, I was praying one night and I just had a very clear impression, uh, with three words, Phoenix real estate. And I thought, okay, okay, I can do that. Um, and so I woke up the next morning, didn't tell anybody, uh, but I, I went to the BYU alumni database and I looked up every single person who was in the database, who was in Phoenix doing any type of real estate. I, I sent 90 or 100 emails that day. Uh, from that, I had a dozen or two conversations, ended up with, with two job offers, was incredibly fortunate to, to work for an amazing company, uh, spent four years there doing real estate development, developed neighborhood shopping centers all over Southern California and Colorado. Um, and, and it was just an incredible learning experience. I mean, it was, again, it was during 08, 09, during the massive economic downturn, which which hit real estate harder than just about any industry. But it was an incredible time for me to learn and to grow. And I sought out a lot of different mentors during that time. And, and uh, anyway, it was just a hugely beneficial experience. And I loved, loved working in that industry. And, and uh, during that time, um, thought that that's kind of probably what I'd be doing. But I uh, was watching General Conference one, one morning while living down in Arizona and just had this impression that I was supposed to get an MBA. Um, again, not hadn't for sure been on my radar. I'd thought about different postgraduate degrees or maybe not doing one or, or whatever that was. I had a brother who had recently graduated from Harvard Business School, uh, had a wonderful experience, and he you know, felt strongly about that. Um, but that, that was kind of my decision process was but I think it's probably time to get an MBA. I loved real estate development. Um, I was passionate about my job for the first three and a half years. And the the last six months, I knew I was ready for something different. Yeah. And and then was, you know, obviously, you know, potential names or schools to, to attend comes to mind. So how did you land on uh, applying and attending uh, Kellogg? Yeah. So I went to, to Kellogg over at Northwestern. Um, look for me, it was, I, I'd explored a lot of different programs. I went and visited a bunch of different campuses. I talked to tons of alumni, uh, who'd gone to all these different programs. Um, I I think that fit is something we don't value often enough. At least I didn't. 
uh, either when looking for an MBA or my my post uh, graduate work experience. Like I I didn't think about fit enough, but there were some schools that I showed up on campus, and you just kind of immediately were like, "This this isn't my place. These aren't my people." You know. Um, yeah. For, for me, uh, Kellogg, when I visited campus, it immediately just felt right. It felt at home. Um, and, uh, you know, I, look, I don't know that, that it matters most of the time where you go to school. Any of the top five, 10 programs have the same, uh, the same recruiters who come and you can go to the same companies. And, um, but I, I at least had, you know, a couple of very strong experiences uh, where I knew that I was supposed to go to Kellogg. And, um, I'm very grateful for those experiences. They were, you know, about a year apart, but in each instance, it was, it was very, a strong impression that that's where I was supposed to go. Um, and I, I was incredibly grateful. I fell in love with Chicago. I think it's the greatest city in America, um, and had an amazing time there, but it, it wasn't just an easy path. I mean, I've shared with a, a few people before the, the night before, <laughs> before I got admitted, I'm laughing. Cause like it, it always is like the night before, right? It's the yeah. fourth watch <laughs> of the night, whatever the night before I got admitted. I, I remember I had a pretty angry prayer where I, I said, God, like I didn't, I didn't apply to a lot of, I mean, I'm planning on going to Kellogg. You told me I was going to Kellogg. Uh, and now I've got to get all these other applications ready for round two because I, it doesn't seem like it's working out. The deadline's coming up, blah, blah, blah. I thought my interview had been really weird, whatever. Of course, after I uh, after that, um, I get a phone call the next morning uh, saying, you know, hi, this is Yana Chavez. You've been admitted to the Kellogg School of Management. And I'll never forget that moment. And I, I remember just feeling kind of dumb and that we need to have I, I need to have a little more trust. Um but anyway, that's how I ended up at Kellogg. And it, it was for me, the perfect fit, the perfect place. Um, maybe it's because I'm bad at decision making or whatever, but I, I felt very uh, inspired that that's where I was supposed to go. And I'm thrilled that I went there. I, I ended up adding a second degree as well. I ended up studying public policy at the time I had intended to go into healthcare um, and, and really felt like it was important if you were going to go into healthcare to understand both the business side and the policy side. So I, I studied public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, after the first two years, decided that healthcare was not an industry I wanted to spend any more of my life than I dedicated to those two years. And and so I, I'm not sure that I would have done both degrees uh, looking back, but at the same time, you can never turn over those experiences or friendships. Or So obviously ended up just finishing that third year and, and graduating, but that's that's kind of how I ended up where I, where I was. Nice. Interesting. Well, I, I definitely want to sort of explore some, maybe some of those uh, perspectives and experiences you had during, uh, you know, in graduate school, with, you know, earning both of those degrees. Uh, but let's maybe turn towards some of these principles you sent me. Um, and I'm sure some of them will reflect back into not only maybe your college college years or graduate school years, but also your professional life. So uh, the first principle you, you say is life is long and the world is small. What do you mean by that? I mean, look, life, life is really long and it's crazy how often you run into people from, you know, your past experiences, past jobs, from school, wherever that past neighborhoods. And I just think it's such an important lesson to never burn a bridge and to always be kind. Um, when, when you, it, it's easy when someone, you know, quits a job or you've spent so much time recruiting them and they choose a different path or whatever to, to feel some anxiety or angst. And, 
uh, or, or, you know, people, if their needs aren't met at a certain career, then they can storm off in a half, whatever that is, like, it's never worth it because um, the world is a shockingly small place. And it's amazing how often you cross paths with people that you never expected to see again. And one of the, the great lessons for me in this was Conan O'Brien. Um, he finally got his dream job of hosting The Tonight Show. I assume I'm not I'm not a comedian, but I assume every comedian's like dream job is to host the Tonight Show, and he he does that. And I've I've done enough work on sponsorships and with with media, whatever that I I'm familiar with these non disparagement clauses in contracts, where you you just sign away your life that you can't ever say anything bad about it. But Conan, as part of this breakup with the Tonight Show, and he's getting fired, negotiates in his final paperwork that he can say anything he wants about NBC that night, anything he wants. And, and he says, and this is what I want to say. He says, thank you. I want to say thank you to NBC. I imagine all the producers are sitting in the back wondering what awful thing he's about to say. And then he ends up with this. He says, I just want to thank N- NBC. It's been the highlight of my life. And then the advice he dispenses is work hard and be kind and amazing things will happen. And I think that's absolutely true. If you work hard and are kind, amazing things will happen. And, and I think it's a great life lesson. I've had this, this little thing hum, hung up in my room for years. It says, if you're too busy for people, you're too busy. And it's easy to invest in the short-term things, but it's, it's so important to invest in relationships, to love people, to remember that life is long and the world is small. So never burn a bridge and always be kind. Yeah. No, that's, that's sage advice for sure. And now you're going to flip the tables on us here with uh, this next point, principle, which is life is short and the world is big. Fair. And I'm not trying to be too cute by half, but <laughs> I, look, I, I firmly believe in the principle of being all in. Whatever you choose to do, be the best at it. And, and you can never be the best if you have one foot in and one foot out. You just end up getting ripped in half. Um, that, that said, when I say life is short and the world is big, none of us are trapped And I I firmly believe that inertia is the most powerful force in the universe and the most dangerous. And I had a professor at Kellogg, a a finance professor, and he'd been at Kellogg for almost 30 years. He ran a huge piece of the the grad program there, very well regarded, wonderful human being. And he told us, a small group of us got together with him just to get his, his advice one time. And he said that every year, every summer, he would go out to the woods to a cabin for two or three days and just reflect. And it was important to him that he consciously chose to return to teach for one more year. And he said, look, every year for 30 years, I've made that decision to come back and teach. He said, but I'm not willing to let life just happen to me and just come back because it's the easy thing to do. But inertia is that objects at rest stay at rest, objects in motion stay in motion. It's so easy to just keep showing up at your job every day because that's what you've always done and never really think about it. And so as, as he talked to us about this idea that I go out every year, and it's not like you're making this decision every day, right? He decides I'm going to be all in for another year. But for him, I want to consciously make the decision to keep coming back. And eventually, I'll consciously make a decision to do something else. But it's way too easy to just go along to get along. And then you wake up one day and you're like, how, how did this happen uh, in my life? And so it's, it's this idea that life really is short and the world is big and you're never trapped. And there are so many opportunities. My, my favorite quote comes from Oscar Wilde, to live is the rarest thing in the world. 
Most people exist. That is all. And if we, if we find ourselves battling that dichotomy of living versus existing, then, then, then something's wrong. We have to figure out how to reinvigorate ourselves to, to live. And this, this idea, I think, comes with this idea of no bad trades. Don't trade your health for your work. Don't trade your family for fun. Don't trade your faith for things that don't last. There's, there's always something else. And don't make these bad trades because you don't have to. And I think sometimes it's, it's easy to feel, um, you know, contained in a moment where it's like nothing will be better or you, you feel like you can't do something else. But there are so many things you can do, so many places you can go, so many people with whom you can work. And it's not worth spending any time with people or in situations that cause you to question yourself or your integrity uh, or what you believe. Yeah. And I love this. The So the contrast of both of these these approaches, you know, looking that the li- life is long and the world is small, that, you know, patience is worth it. Like there's so many more opportunities coming your way and then life is short and the world is big that, uh, you know, man, there's endless are the opportunities. And it's just a great um mindset to, to stay in as you're trying to establish yourself. Cause you know, sometimes like you feel like that angry prayer before your acceptance, it's like, sometimes it's just not moving at the pace you want or, you know, and it's easy to get impatient or feel like the roads are closing off. Right. For sure. Yeah, for sure. All right. Next principle is build fires and run towards them. So this is something I, I wish I had learned earlier. And, and to be clear, lessons, these are all lessons that I'm still trying to learn. Yeah. But um, I think there are a couple of points to, to this one. In terms of building fires, uh, you know, it's been said before, but there are two types of fires. You can either, in, in your career, you can either build fires uh, or you can put them out. And you're always going to get way more credit for building a fire than being the person that puts out fires. Hmm. Um, in, in my career, I will say that like, hopefully there are a lot of big things that I've done that had a huge impact. And I'll be honest, there are a lot of, some of my proudest moments are from things that I did that never happened. Because I did them, something did not happen. I put out a fire. No one, no one knows about those by virtue of the fact that like I did a great job, so no one ever knew about it. But, but as you look towards your career, I think it's such an important and interesting construct that you'll always get more credit and I think have more fun uh, building fires, throwing fuel on a fire, building something uh, that grows uh, instead of putting it out. And I'm grateful to have learned that earlier in my career and again, still still trying to learn and apply that throughout because I think uh, while both are incredibly important skills to have and it you need to be able to be relied on and have people you can rely on for both, uh, you should always look to be building fires, creating value, stuff like that. And then this idea of, of running toward them, uh, one of the great lessons that, that I've learned over time um, from others is that it's so powerful uh, to, to always be looking for people who are running toward things rather than running away from them. And when I'm hiring or, or stuff like that, it's, it's interesting how often uh, candidates who are, like, who are less likely to, to contribute or be there are, are frequently talking about how they're running away from a bad boss, running away from a, a negative situation, running away from something. And, and to be clear, good people leave bad situations quickly. There's, there are a lot of reasons to do that. But sometimes if the pattern develops that you're always running away toward, from something versus running toward it, um, it's, a, it's a little different. And I'll, I'll never forget my oldest brother 
uh, shared with me a story some time ago about um, that that he had heard where um, one one surgeon said of another, you know, that person will never be a great surgeon. And I, I asked why, and he said, well, because the fundamental premise driving his life is fear. And I thought, okay, well, that sounds uncomfortable. I'm, you know, I'm often driven by fear. Uh, and I, I said, tell me what, what you mean by that. And they said, well, this person will never be a great surgeon because they're, they're too cautious. They're always worried. They're trying so hard to make sure they never make a mistake. Now you think like with a surgeon who's doing very delicate surgery, I want someone who's pretty cautious. I want someone who's never going to, who's trying hard never to make a mistake. Those all sound like good things. And I, and I said, okay, well, tell me what's the fundamental premise driving your life? And he paused for a minute and he said, continual improvement. And I said, what do you mean? He said, when I'm in there doing surgery, I'm always looking for how can I do it faster? How can I do it better? How can I do it more efficiently? Uh, how can I do it more safely? And it's, it's always tweaking, uh, figuring out what you can do just a little bit better every single time. And then he said, I try to do that with every element of my life. How can I make, how can I continually improve my marriage or my situation or my enjoyment of life or whatever that is? And uh, there, there's a principle in psychology about motivation called approach versus avoidance motivation. And it's more powerful to be approaching something. Your motivation is, is running toward rather than running away. And it's the same idea of, is the premise driving you fear or is it continual improvement? And it's, it's been a really powerful construct as I've looked at it because it's changed how I think about repentance. I'm one of those people that when they stand up in conference and they're like, hey, repentance is the most hopeful word in the English language. I'm like, says who, right? <laughs> like, I, I never felt that way as a kid. I didn't, whatever. But it's because to me, repentance was this idea of you've done a bad job. You did something wrong. Fix it versus this and it, therefore the fear piece the avoidance motivation versus approach which is continual improvement where it's like the goal is not never to make a mistake like that throw that out the window the only thing we know is that we're all going to mess up all the time so throw perfection out the window and just know that's the baseline so all we have to think about is how can i get better every day and when you mess up again or do the same thing for the four thousandth time the, the goal is continual improvement. We're, we're approaching Christ, not avoiding the devil, whatever, right? And so it's yeah. this idea of, of, of continual improvement, of always running toward things, uh, not running away from them. And again, even just to the brass attacks and in interviewing or, or MBAs or whatever, um, I'm always much more interested in someone who can tell a story or wants to join a company because they're running toward an opportunity not running away from one. And I just think it's a really powerful, powerful thing. Now, to be fair, most in, in the study of excellence, most people who are who are fall into these grit paragons or others ha have a little bit of both. And it's okay to be running towards something and have a little bit of this fear motivation uh, in you as well. So it's not this dichotomy either or, but I think we'll, we'll be much more successful overall if, if we have this approach motivation. Yeah. Do any uh, specific examples or stories come to mind as far as maybe when you were when, when you were, you know, running towards that fire, or, or maybe maybe the time that you weren't? Yeah. Look, let me let me share one uh, at Qualtrics. So at Qualtrics, we started what's called the X Four Summit. It was initially 
the uh, Insight Summit. And, uh, you know, at first, are you worried that nobody's going to show up? What's it going to be like? Whatever. I'll admit that was kind of our first year was like, how do we put on a great experience? Um, and, and then our focus was always, how do we continually improve every single thing that we do? Um, and so even if you just look at the speakers that we brought in the first year, you wouldn't know any of them. Uh, you know, there was an author or two that, that may stand out, but then as we kept going, you know, year two or three was, was president Obama's social media manager. And we thought we really nailed it there because he'd sent out like the most liked tweet in history at the time. But fast forward three more years and we have President Obama himself, right? We have Oprah Winfrey that time. Um, we have Richard Branson. Uh, and so the, the point for us was how do you continually improve every single thing you do? And, and it never entered our, our minds at that point that we were afraid we wouldn't be able to fill up the room. I mean, I think we started with a thousand people and then we moved up to 2,000 and then 4,000. And by the, the time we had Oprah Obama, I think we were at 15,000 people. And it was, it was very much, we were very much of the mindset, if you build it, they will come. Um, and we didn't let the fear of, of not creating this, this event or what would happen if we didn't do it. Uh, and instead, just focus on, on where we'd go. And I, I think one of the great questions you often get asked, it started in uh, in a thing about love, but I think it can apply to everything. Too too often, we say to ourselves, "What if it won't work?" But the much more powerful question is, "But what if it what if it does?" Yeah. Right? Or at least, what if what if trying to make it work will be the best adventure ever? And that's I think such this this different construct of look. We could we could say, "What if nobody comes?" Or what if we spend all this money on a conference? What if we invite? Barack Obama and nobody shows up, but but what if we do invite Barack Obama, Oprah Winfrey, and Richard Branson all on the same program? And what if we make it the greatest thing that's ever happened for these these attendees and for our conference? And what will that mean for our business? Yeah. And so it's that willingness to I think dream big, and and at least take the risk. Just try, right? Because if you don't try, the answer is for sure no. Yeah. Yeah. That's perfect. Really helpful. Uh, all right, so this next principle uh, is is live in fear. So putting that up against that, what you just talked about. I know that, that seems at odds with what we just talked about, but I, I want to make the distinction. I think the previous is is sort of being paralyzed by fear, um, being afraid to, to do something. Uh, this one's about learning to dance with the fear, hmm. learning to try new things. So Seth Godin, who's a great... A uh, great writer, leader. Uh, he he asked this question that I love. When is the last time you did something for the first time? Hmm. And I, I thought to myself, dang, I don't. When's the last time I did something for the first time? And I have a friend in in grad school uh, who I thought did something completely crazy. He emailed this very famous author. I don't know that this would work anymore, but he emailed this famous author and said, hey, I'd love to fly, to fly out there and spend some time with you and just pick your brain. Can I fly out to where you live and spend an hour or two with you? <laughs> and the nice. author said, well, I, I guess so, sure. So he flies out there, he goes, and they have this really nice chat at the guy's home. And then my friend, I don't know, not being a great planner, like didn't have a way to get back to the airport or whatever. So he ends up spending the night at the author's house and doing all this stuff, and they developed this interest. I mean, they didn't stay in touch, but he had this incredible experience. And I said, I think you're crazy. I can't believe you did that. And he said, look, I make myself do at least one thing every month that scares me. Huh. Because I, I want to, to always be pushing the boundaries 
on what I think is possible and whatever that means, right? Sometimes that's a physical feat. Most often it's reaching out to have, you know, somebody had no business talking to, but it's this idea of, of when's the last time you did something for the first time? Like what, what are we trying to go out there and, and, and you can be paralyzed by the fear uh, or you can learn to dance with the fear. And mm-hmm. one of the, the best ways I've ever heard this uh, talked about was, was a man named Jim Coke. He's the founder of Sam Adams, the Boston uh, brewery. And he was working at the time at BCG as a consultant, had a great career path. Everything's going well. And he quits. And, you know, he quits to start a, a brewery for this um, this this ale up in, in Boston. And it's like, I don't know if this is going to work or if it's even a good idea or whatever, right? And uh, when he's talking about it, he, he said, I think we too often conflate things that are scary but aren't dangerous and things that are dangerous but not scary. And, and he had in his past life, he taught a lot of people to repel. And he said, think about repelling. You, you literally walk backwards off a cliff. And he said, that's really, really scary, but it's not dangerous. I mean, those ropes will, will hold a car, right? If you set it up yeah. right, you're fine. It's not dangerous. It just feels really scary to walk backwards off a cliff. Then he says, now think about another analogy. You're going snowshoeing, but it's in May. And you're on a, on a slope with a 35 degree angle. Beautiful day in May. You're walking along the, the, the snow. That is not scary at all, but it's incredibly dangerous because the snow is melting. It's going to find a layer of ice and eventually you're going to have an avalanche. And so we, we misconstrue in our minds what is dangerous versus what is, what is scary. And so he talked about when he quit his very safe job at BCG to start this brewery, that, that was... Stay, I guess staying at the job would have been dangerous. Not scary, but very dangerous. And, and why would it have been so dangerous? Because he said, I didn't want to wake up when I was 65, looking back and said, I wasted my life doing something I didn't want to do. And so that's where I, I'm saying like this idea of, of live in fear um, is, is so powerful. Uh, because if we're willing to dance with the fear, you can't let it control you. But dance with the fear. Trevor, Trevor Noah in his great book, um, uh, Born a Crime, talks about, he said, I don't regret anything I've ever done in life. And I thought, wouldn't, wouldn't that be nice, right, to, to be able to say that? But he basically goes on to explain that he only regrets things that he didn't do. Because, because he said, you know, if you don't, rejection is an answer. Failure is an answer. But regret is the eternal question you never have an answer to. And, and too often, I think we're unwilling to, to break out of this mold and learn to dance with the fear. Uh, it's certainly something that I've struggled with and yeah. a lesson I'm, I'm trying to figure out here um, and make sure that as I evaluate, man, that may seem scary, but it's actually the very best thing I could ever do. Whereas this seems really safe, but it's incredibly dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that because uh, it teaches me like there there's really n- no way to live a life without fear. So you can either run from it or you can learn to dance with it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. All right, next principle is we talk a lot about learning from failure, but not enough about how to how to handle success. Amen. And let, let me be let me be clear here. I'm I'm not a CEO. I'm not the epitome of success <laughs> like a lot of other people that you have had or will have. 
on this podcast. I'm eight years out of grad school with a lot of life ahead of me and lots of opportunity for both success and failure. Um, so l- let me let me categorize that a little. This this is an idea I'm actually stealing directly from from Ryan Smith, who founded Qualtrics and, and owns the Utah Jazz now. Uh, I was interviewing him at the LDS MBA conference. And he talked about this idea that we need to to be better at how to handle success. And after the conference, a friend called me who'd seen the interview and he said, hey, that's nice. I'm glad Ryan talked about it, but I'm not a billionaire. I never will be. That doesn't apply to me. And I I thought, you know, that that's just not true. Like at, at whatever stage of our life, first of all, nobody ever feels like they made it right. Uh, whether you're a Fortune 500 CEO, you look at the other Fortune 500 CEOs. If you're an MBA student, you look at the other MBA students. Your your comparative subset always exists, right? Now, we shouldn't always compare ourselves and all of that, but it's still there and it's a temptation that's always there. And so I I think the power here is that we've got to learn how to handle success because unfortunately, it's so easy to feel any level of success. And again, maybe that's being admitted into a, into a good program. Maybe that's being uh, promoted at work. Maybe that's, you know, an exit where you make some money, uh, whatever those things are. But for me, I always think back to Ecclesiastes 9, where it talks about the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor yet riches to men of understanding, but time and chance happeneth to them all. And, and in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the Savior says he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I mean, it just we, you can't ever give yourself uh, too, too much credit. And that's not to say that a lot of people don't work really, really hard and take smart risks and, and try different things. But it's easy to, to start to believe um, that, that when we tried new things or dreamed big dreams or, or took this risk, uh, that, that we did it all on our own. And um, I think it's really a powerful force to, to always be reminded that when we think about success, we have to think about what will that be like? And more importantly, what will I be like uh, if and when I get there? And uh, if, if I could just share one experience we had with, with Clayton Christensen, as we were all... Uh, graduating, I, I finished over there in 2013, and Clay got the Latter Day Saint Student Association together, uh, and just said, "Hey, I want to talk to you all before you graduate." He said, "I've never done this before, uh, but I but I want to do it here." And we got together in Aldrich Hall, and we sang the Spirit of God, and and he gave us all a copy of a book that he just written about the saints in Boston. Um, and shared several of the stories from that book. I think that's why it was so on his mind. He wanted to share because he just finished this book. Um, and then there were two experiences in that conversation that I'll, I'll never forget. Um, but he, he said, most of you in this room will go on to be great leaders in the companies in which you work. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll have a lot of people report to you. You'll have a lot of influence. You'll be great leaders in those companies. He said, but most of you will never be leaders in the church. And that will be very hard for you because you'll think, well, I could do a better job. I'm a better administrator. I could organize all this really fast. I could da, 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 da. And, and you'll leave your, your professional uh, position during the day where all these people report to you and do what you say. And you'll come to your ecclesiastical role and you'll have a bishop or elders, corn president or whomever 
who is not a great leader and, and maybe uh, or great administrator. And it'll be frustrating to you because you'll just see the weaknesses. And he said, I just want to ask you now to remember this one thing. Your job isn't to lead, but your job is to build leaders, uh, especially when it comes to the church. And so he said, if you'll go in with that mindset that I'm here to help build leaders, not to lead myself, then your experience as members of the church will be much, much richer. Fast forward the conversation just a little bit to, to a slightly different thing. And this goes to this idea of uh, learn to handle success and remember who you are. Uh, Christine Christensen, his wife is there as well. And they were talking about missionary work, Clay, among the greatest missionaries this church has seen, and Christine. And they're talking about the weak and the simple and how we go preach the gospel and all these things. And one individual raised his hand and, and basically said something along the lines of, look, we've, we've all been blessed to go to Harvard. We all want to serve. What's your advice to us as we go out to help serve the weak and the simple? And Christine Christensen, in that sweet, kind, humble way of hers, just responded by saying, I think it starts by recognizing that we are the weak and the simple. And, and that ended that conversation. But again, it's so powerful to remember that, that as it says in Job, we, we, you know, we sit under trees we did not plant and, and drink from wells we did not dig. And uh, that, that, again, doesn't take away from any of the hard work or the risks or the willingness to dream or any of those things that, that people have along their way to success, whatever success is to you. Um, but our job is not always to lead, but to build leaders. And, and our job is to remember um, that, that luck plays a big role in a lot of these things and, and recognize the, the blessings that have come our way along the way. Wow. I love that story. And I'm just curious, like, is there anything that you do like daily or, you know, in, in somewhat of a routine to help ground yourself and, and remind yourself of that? Or maybe it's just simply remembering these stories and, uh, and these, these quotes that you, that you shared. Yeah, look, I don't, I don't know that I'm, I don't know that I'm always good at it. Right. I think it's something that I, you have to continually work toward. I, I'm very grateful to be surrounded by a lot of, of really good people. I'll, I'll just share with you. Uh, I'll share a story from my own failures. How's that? And then yeah. we can just <laughs> cool. talk through it, but um, I'll never forget shortly following SAP's acquisition of, of Qualtrics, right? Uh, again, biggest, uh, private enterprise software acquisition in the history of tech. So it's a big deal. A lot of people, blah, blah, blah. New doors are opening to us. We're going to these meetings and I'll, I'll uh, Ryan Smith and I are in New York and we go meet with uh, a very powerful household name business leader uh, in business and, and media. And the meeting is supposed to be 30 minutes long. And, you know, it's going so well that and and this person has a board meeting right afterwards. She's got a bunch of public company CEOs and others there. Uh, the meeting's going so well that it goes from thirty minutes to three and a half hours, and keep inviting more and more people in, including these these CEOs and others. And it's just a phenomenal meeting that leads to some really cool projects that we work on uh, then and still work on now, and uh, just incredible. We leave that meeting. And I will admit, I'm thinking to myself, dang, I'm pretty good. I just held my own with all of these leaders in this long meeting. And I think I did a good job and I can operate at this level. That's cool. 
And I thankfully didn't verbalize that. I just did. So I'm admitting it here. But (laughs) uh, in my own head, I I, for a second, I'm thinking that we go meet up with some friends for lunch and they say, hey, how was the meeting? And and Ryan, first thing he does is said, you know, the meeting was great, but I think it's really important to remember that if we hadn't had all these things go right at Qualtrics, if we hadn't had this acquisition and all these other things, we would never have even been in that room. And we have to remember, you know, how lucky we are to be in that room in the first place. Yeah. And I was, again, he I hadn't verbalized anything, but I felt very, uh, in a very good way, rebuked to remember how, and, and to see how, how quickly we can fall into traps of thinking ourselves that, that we're good or better than we are. Uh, and it was a great reminder. And I think about that lesson all the time. And, um, you know, there are plenty of times when I've been an idiot or said the wrong thing or not, not been the very best. There are plenty of times where to that first principle of life is, is long and the world is small where I haven't always been kind. Right. I I mean, I, I try to always be that I try to do that, but I, I I mess up. And so uh, look, I don't think there's a, there's no silver bullet. I think it's just, we constantly have to check ourselves and say, who am I becoming? What am I doing? How am I treating people? And, and, I've always loved one of the things Ryan and Ashley Smith talk about all the time is if we would have done it 10 years ago, we'll, we'll do it today. Right. As in like, we're, we're not too good for something now. If it's something we would, if we would have gone and helped the neighbors move 10 years ago, you better believe we're going to sign up to go help the neighbors move today. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome advice. Love it. Uh, Last principle you have is uh, experience is everything. What do you mean by that? I, I, I'm probably in the minority here, but you know, we, we talk in the church and other places about the mysteries of God, uh, will be revealed unto us. And I always thought to myself, man, I'm, I'm really excited for that new knowledge or new, uh, information or new intelligence that's going to come. Right. And I, I am not a huge sci-fi reader. I think this is sci-fi, but I was reading the book Dune, uh, a while back in book club. And there's a line in there that says the mystery of life isn't a problem to solve, but a reality to experience. And I thought to myself, that that is fascinating. And maybe the mysteries of God is, it's not knowledge to gain, but experiences that we're to have. And as I think about life, experience really is everything. And and I, I fear that I am, and, and perhaps all of us, are too theoretical about the gospel too theoretical about life. We talk about it. It's easy to, to talk about things, but, but not always good at living it. And every, you know, Elder Ballard once talked about every minute that we spend reorganizing ministering is an hour that we're not out ministering. And uh, it's easy to be distracted by things that don't have an impact. And, and therefore we're missing the experience that we could have in our actual ministering. And in a day where everybody wants to be an influencer and there are so many talking heads on every TV channel and every podcast, whatever that is, right? It's more important than ever to transition to a show, not tell world. Uh, St. Francis of Assisi said, you know, he's credited with saying, preach the gospel all the time. If necessary, use words. And and I, I love the... Um, instruction that Terrell and Fiona Givens have given about about baptism. We talk about baptism all the time, about, 
as an ordinance of repentance. That's what the fourth article of faith says. It is an ordinance of repentance, and that's true. But it's also an ordinance of adoption. I don't think we talk about that nearly enough. And and it's that's what we read in Mosiah when it's we're willing to comfort people that need comfort, mourn with people that need that are mourning, celebrate with people that are celebrating, right? We're there as this as this group of people together to have experiences together. And I think too often it's about, oh, baptism is for repentance. And when you take the sacrament, it's to repent and think about what I did wrong, what I can do better. But Elder Holland gave a great talk recently on the sacrament where he said, it's also a time to look around at the congregation and think to yourself and seek revelation, who can I serve? Because it's about this ordinance of adoption. And if we looked at the sacrament as an opportunity to say, to look outward and also say, how can I bless other people? Um, and what are the experiences that we can create together? That, that's really powerful. It changed how I have tried to look at, at these things because it's, it's all about the experiences that we, that we have. And I, I hesitate when, and I try to check myself, if I'm in a class and I'm going to give an experience and raise my hand and say, and, and start with on my mission, which was 20 years ago, or if you do that 30 years. Uh, and, yeah. and share an experience back then, then it probably means I'm not having the experiences I need to today. What are the, I should, you know, we should be able to speak in the present tense, not the past tense. When someone asks us about, about our experience with prayer or our experience with missionary work or our experiences with our family or our experiences with our spouse or our experiences, uh, whatever those are, but experience is everything. And we can't always be talking about things in the past tense. We, we need, if we're going to become, I think, the people that we need to, to become. And again, this is not a thing that I'm good at, but something I'm, I'm continually working toward. Then we have to be able to talk about our experiences with the gospel in the present tense. And that means I need to be able to have, ex- I need to be having experiences with prayer, with revelation, with all those things today and every day so that I can speak about it all in the present tense. Yeah, man, that's uh, so helpful. And it really does cause cause one to reflect is because it, you can sort of get in this rut of just sort of rehearsing or the routines of life or the day-to-day, you know, Monday through Friday grind and and to really step back and say, actually, I'm, I'm not just solving case studies here. I'm actually going to go out and experience and create case studies of my own life that I can experience that'll help me grow individually. So really helpful. Um, I'm curious as we wrap up here, Mike, just from a, a spiritual perspective in relation to your journey as a professional and in, 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 as a business individual, uh, where do those worlds meet and how has your spirituality blessed your your professional life? Look, I, th- I think it's a great question. I think it's very interesting to think through. I, I go back to that St. Francis of Assisi line I just shared, which is preach the gospel all the time, if necessary, use words. Um, the gospel in in so many ways is obviously the foundation upon which our lives are, are hopefully built and the kind of people that we want to be and also the kind of people uh, that we want to surround ourselves with. And I don't mean that you want to surround yourself just with members of the church. Uh, I certainly don't want to do that. Um, but in fact, you want to surround yourself with a, a broad array of people. But um, if there's one thing that I, I love from the, the concept, I think, and from an eternal perspective that really bleeds into to what I do, and I'll, I'll use a secular way of talking about it, but I think it, it, it feeds into this eternal perspective idea. 
But there's a great author, Wallace Stegner, who talked about uh, in a book, uh, Big Rock Candy Mountain, about viewing ourselves as dots or lines. And I think that's the most honest way I can talk about it, is that too often in our lives, we view this moment as the defining thing in my life, whether it's you just got divorced or you lost your job or you didn't get the job offer you were hoping for or whatever that thing was, we often view ourselves as this dot. On the flip side, you got a promotion and you're just like, man, I will be the greatest ever, right? And and we we look at these moments um, too, with too much validity. We, we, we ascribe too much to those moments and, and those dots. And, uh, and that can either take us to really good places or really bad places or, or whatever that is. But if we keep the eternal perspective and instead not view ourselves as dots, but lines, uh, then I think it, it, you're never too high, never too low, much more steady. And what we're looking for ultimately is consistency in the cause of Christ. And, and that's what does that, right? Is to keep all these views. Cause look, I, I know all of us, like we, we've had great moments where you just think, man, I will never mess up again, or my career is on the best trajectory ever or whatever. Right. And if you're always up here, recognize that's a dot and be humble and recognize that there are other things that are going to happen. There's a long road ahead. Uh, at the same time, like don't be so discouraged when something happens. We all have bad days at work. The other day something happened and I just was, you know, frustrated and beside myself. And then I thought in 10 years, no, no one's going to remember this moment. Like just chill. It, it this dot is important to me right now. And it's important to validate people's feelings and pe- validate people's experiences. But we can do that while also giving perspective. Um, and a lot of psychology talks about how venting doesn't work or isn't helpful because we most often vent to those who are right next to us and they can't give the perspective that we need. And so if you are going to vent, you have to pick your the people to whom you vent very well, who can not only be listeners, but perspective givers. Um, and, and I think that idea, that principle of not viewing ourselves as dots, but rather making sure we always look at things on the continuum of the line uh, really brings the gospel and, and everyday reality into the right perspective. Oh, I love that. Mike, this has been great. I've, uh, I've, really learned and got a deeper perspective with some of these uh, principles. And I know listening audience uh, will, once they hear this, obviously. Um, last question I have is uh, if you're standing in a room full of, of MBA students or alumni, what to, what final encouragement would you give them? Especially those who are maybe uh, really struggling on the, on that journey as, as a dot rather than a line. Look, I, I, I mean, I think I'd go back to, to that principle, right? That, there's always more ahead and there's always other people ahead. And, and I think one thing that we've learned, again, I just keep going to psychology, but often in those moments, we tend to constrict our circle of people to whom we turn, uh, which is exactly the opposite of what we need to do. Um, when we're having those, those tough moments, yes, it's great to have a few people that you can rely on and, and be your confidants and your, your supporters. It's also incredibly important to expand our, our network of people to whom we turn. Um, and, and those who tend to have a, um, an internal locus of control who, who, who feel like they can impact their environment also tend to be those who reach out to a larger group of, of their informal networks 
to help buoy them and support them. And I, I think it's that idea that there's a whole world of people out there to help you and to lift you and to, to be mentors to you, to, to offer assistance to you. And, and in those moments, it's easy to collapse in on ourselves or only the five people that we talk to. Uh, and it's counterintuitive, but it's best to, to blossom out into a much larger group. So if you're, if you're in a tough spot, I'd just say, like, remember that there are a lot more people on your team than you realize, um, even if you hardly know them. There are a lot of really good humans in this world who are ready and eager to help. So make sure you're, you're reaching out and allow people the opportunity to, to be helpful. Allow them to believe in you and allow them to bet on you. Thank you for listening to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about our guests and visit latterdaysaintmba.com to find details about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society. 